All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. It is a Tuesday episode, and that means it is my time to hang out with my buddy, good friend, and trusted resource, Terry Fletcher. Hey, Terry. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So uh, today we got, I think, you know, this is going to be the first of a two-part um series that we're going to really go through the appeals process for Medicare. And I think by the end of the second um, uh, episode on this topic, you know, it would be our hope that you as a healthcare professional or you as the individual charged with the responsibility of filing appeals on behalf of your organization, uh, can create a winning appeal. And that's really what we hope to be able to um, accomplish over these uh, next couple of weeks that we bring these episodes to you. So Terry, I'm going to kick it over to you and let you kind of dive us right into uh, the topic. But before we do, let me just say again to each and every single one of you tuning in, logging on and just hanging out with us. We really appreciate you and we hope that you enjoyed these uh, next two podcasts. So Terry, go ahead. Okay. So good morning listeners. And yes, we are at Terry Tuesday. That's my favorite phrase. I actually coined it the hashtag Terry Tuesday just so everybody knows. So the reason that uh, Sean and I really wanted to bring this to your attention is that we really kind of focused on audits through the podcasting that we've been doing. And we wanted to kind of take it a step backward and see where it starts because, you know, audits can be triggered by denials and things like that when we get into CERT and, and all of that, but a Medicare appeals. So a lot of people feel that anytime there's a denial, you should automatically appeal it. Well, not so fast. When claims are denied by Medicare, your providers absolutely have the right to appeal the decision. In fact, you can appeal that decision up to five times all the way to a judicial review in U.S. District Court if you disagree with the rulings. But you have to realize that not all denials merit an appeal. Now, when they do, you have to unfortunately, I say unfortunately, follow the rules because there's levels of appeals. And Sean's going to speak to some of that in a bit. But when you look at the level of appeal, each level is different and has to be sent to a different contractor. And the big key here is submitting an unnecessary appeal or submitting an appeal at the wrong level or to the wrong party can not only cause you delays or dismissals, but it could actually potentially uh, cause you to forfeit your right to an appeal. So wondering if, it, if an appeal is the next step, here's maybe how you would know if it is an appeal or not and maybe where to send it and where to start. So if you receive an, a rejected claim, for instance, that means the claim was unprocessable based on the information provided, rejected claims cannot be appealed. Okay, so claims are rejected because information is missing or a code is invalid. So when you get a rejected claim, you need to resubmit that with additional or valid information. That's not an appeal. Now, denied claims, on the other hand, let's make sure we know the difference. That contains sufficient information to process, but they're not paid for or they're applied to the beneficiary's deductible or coinsurance, that still means that they were allowed because of Medicare policies or issues with the information. So for example, if a claim does not support, and I'm air quoting, medical necessity, the expenses were incurred before or after the beneficiary, the Medicare patient, was covered by Medicare, or add-on codes were billed with the same physician, that, but they did not, by the same physician, but they did not perform the primary code, the claim will be denied, something like that. 
When a claim is denied because the information was submitted incorrectly, often the claim can be reopened using what they call a clerical error reopening, a CER, and they can fix errors resulting from human or mechanical errors on the part of the contractor. So if you had a uh, denial because of a duplicate charge, but upon investigation, you find that the wrong date of service was entered, you can simply reopen the claim with the correct date of service using the CER. But when a claim is denied for reasons that cannot be addressed with the CER, now we've got an appeals process. So now um, we're going to kind of get into that. And all appeals have to be in writing. There's five levels of appeals. And just so everyone knows, and we're going to kind of today really dive into the first two, we've got level one, redetermination by a Medicare administrative contractor, so the MAC. Level two, that's a reconsideration by a, a QIC, that is a qualified independent contractor. Level three is decision of, by Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. So the, I, I like to always call it Omaha, but it's the OMHA. Uh, then we've got level four, review by Medicare Appeals Council. And then level five, that's to the top, judicial review in U.S. District Court. So Sean, I'll let you take it away with the first level of appeal, which is redetermination. And that's, you know, and that just to, before we preface it, remember that has to be done with a hundred by 120 days or within 120 days from the date of the receipt of your ERA, your electronic readmittance device or the EOB that lists the initial determination. So take it away, Sean, where we go from here. All right. Good deal. So one, one of the most important things, <clears throat> excuse me, that I always like to make sure before we really start getting into the nitty gritty, right, of the actual levels of appeal is to make sure that we're all familiar with some very specific terms because not understanding what these terms mean can lead to the difference between a successful appeal and a vacated uh, uh, determination by a judge once you get to level three. And obviously, we're talking about the first two levels today. So as we build to that crescendo of level three, level four, level five, want to make sure that we really lay a solid foundation for all of our listeners. So let me just quickly run through um, what I think are some of the most key terms to be familiar with. The first one is referred to as an amount in controversy, right? Again, it's exactly what it says. This is basically a threshold dollar amount remaining in dispute that's required for a level three and level five appeal. Now, the important thing to remember about this is, and they, they refer to it as an AIC, right? Amount in controversy. The AIC is adjusted annually by a percentage increase tied to a consumer price index. So each year that ball is going to move. And once we get to level three and we get to level five in our next episode, I'll make sure that we talk about what the actual threshold amounts are for 2022. Second, the term that we're talking about is appeal. It's important to understand that term in the context for what we're talking about, right? And, and, and in healthcare, we're talking about a process used when a party. So for example, a beneficiary, a provider, a supplier, any individual that disagrees with an initial determination or a revised determination for healthcare items or services. 
the term appellant. Again, it's an important term. This is a person or an entity filing the appeal. Now, a few years ago, we were introduced to a new type of individual at, as Terry was calling it, Omaha, but it's Oma. Uh, I know she was joking around with that, but um, the the attorney adjudicator, right? So these are individuals who have been appointed by Oma in addition to the administrative law judges. And these are basically licensed attorneys employed by the Department of Health and Human Services who possess a knowledge of Medicare coverage and payment laws, as well as guidance. And these individuals, these individuals are basically authorized to issue decisions on reviews of the qualified independent contractors that Terry alluded to. Um, they can address dismissals and certain administrative law judge hearing requests that are made by the appellants. Uh, we'll get into more terms like determination, meaning a decision made on a payment and or liability of a claim, escalation, meaning you're going to take it from level to level. So today we're talking about the redetermination and then the reconsideration. Um, you have what's called a Medicare redetermination notice. It's an MRN. Basically, this is a letter that you will receive informing a party about the Medicare administrative contractor's redetermination decision. This is so important because without it, you can't go to the reconsideration level. And again, non-participating, it is a big term when it comes to the appeals because there's a lot of folks that are like, well, if you're non-par, you have no rights to appeal. And that's not true. Non-participating is defined as physicians and suppliers who have not signed a participation agreement with Medicare, but they have the right to choose to accept or not accept Medicare assignment on a claim-by-claim -claim basis. And again, non-participating physicians, as well as non-participating suppliers, also have rights to appeals, but So I'm going to jump in here, Sean. I think we lost you on uh, mute. I think you got you got it muted. So here's the, the also one thing I wanted to add to what Sean was saying here is make sure that you know on the level one appeal, that is a redetermination of what you've already sent in. It also needs to go on a redetermination request form. So it's not just, it can be in letter form, but it has to have everything that's on the redetermination request form with your MAC carrier and also check with your MAC carrier if they want it through their portal, through fax, or if they want it through uh, mail. But remember, this also is based on what you already submitted. It's a redetermination and you're now making your case. And then when we, the reconsideration is different as Sean was talking about uh, terms. Reconsideration is once you get your decision from the uh, redetermination, now reconsideration, you're basically saying, oh wait, any missing documentation, identified in the notice of the redetermination is now what you're going to deal with on the second level of appeal. So Sean, I think you're back now. Yeah. I, I don't know what happened there. I don't so know what happened there. So I thought what, I'd just jump in. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad you did. I heard you the entire time. What, what part did I get cut off on? Was it non-par? Uh, yes. You finished so, with the non-par and you just started to move forward. Oh, okay. Well, good. 
because once I, what I basically was saying is that non-participating physicians and suppliers do have appeal rights, but they're limited. They're not to the same level as a par provider or supplier, but they do have limited appeal rights. And then the last couple of things on the record, uh, again, we'll talk about those when we get to the ALJ and then um, obviously the term party. Uh, I love to have parties, um, not like I did when I was in college, but here <laughs> we're not talking about parties from the sense of celebration. We're talking about a person or an entity with standing to appeal an initial determination or subsequent administrative appeal determination or decision. So with that said, <clears throat> let me let me go and jump straight into the first level of appeal. And this Before is the redetermination. Can, yeah. can I comment yeah. on something? Of course. I don't know if you've seen this in your clients, but I've seen this with my clients. And let, let's just put it out there. And it's it's almost a what not to do. Sending an appeal doesn't mean you're sending a rebill saying, pay me more money <laughs> or we don't oh, like yeah. what you did. <laughs> so it, it, there is a process and now here, Sean's going to give you that process, but it, there is a process and you have to follow the instructions. No, absolutely. And it, it, look, here, here's the thing to keep in mind. Medicare, as well as all commercial insurance companies have what's referred to as a pay and chase model, right? So they're going to pay your claims. And then on the back end, they're going to conduct post-payment reviews. They may put you into a prepayment situation, but they're going to ultimately make a determination, whether it's through data analytics, whether it's through an automated process, or whether it's through an actual manual review as to whether or not the claims submitted for reimbursement were, um, were, substantiated by the documentation created by your providers. So here's the, here are the most important things to keep in mind about the redetermination, right? <clears throat> the contractor staff who's reviewing your redetermination, these are not the same individuals involved in making the initial claim determination, right? Now, it's the same level of insurance personnel, meaning these are usually individuals who have access to the claims processing manual. They have access to um, data. They have access to local coverage determinations, local coverage articles, national coverage determinations, but they are not clinical. These are individuals who are making non-clinical medical necessity determinations and or making determinations on applicability of modifiers, whether or not you build the right CPT code, whether or not the diagnosis code attached, you know, supports the medical necessity from a coding perspective. Now, at the redetermination level, the appellant, right? We talked about that term, meaning the individual who filed the appeal. They have to file the request for redetermination with the contractor on your MSN or your remits advice, as Terry said earlier, within 120 days from the date of receipt of the initial determination. Now, remember, the initial determination is the Medicare summary notice. That's the MSN, which gets issued to beneficiaries 
And then the RA, obviously, the remittance advice gets issued to the providers as well as suppliers. So the MSN and the RA also include information about how to actually file a request for your redetermination. Now, there is no minimum monetary threshold required at a redetermination. The only thing that you have to keep in mind is getting it filed within the initial 120 days. Now, there are some requirements that come into play when requesting a a redetermination, right? So um, in addition to following any directions that you get on your MSN or on the RA, you have to utilize CMS uh, form 20027. Okay, that is the appropriate form to use. I'll make sure I provide a link to that redetermination uh, form uh, along with the uh, podcast itself. Now, on this form, 20027, you have to include several things. And to Terry's point, all appeals have to be in writing. So you have to be able to include the beneficiary's name, what's referred to as an HIC. That's the Medicare Health Insurance Claims Number. You have to address the specific and uh, the specific service and/or items for which a redetermination is being requested. You're required to provide the specific date of service, and then a name and signature of the party or a representative of the party. And keep in mind that as an appellant, you have a responsibility to attach any supporting documentation to the redetermination request because again contractors are generally going to issue a decision meaning either a letter an msn or an ra within 60 days of receipt of the redetermination request and 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 the last part here really is this if a claim contains a minor error or some sort of omission the claim actually can be corrected through the reopening process rather than filing an appeal. So you don't always have to file an appeal. Make sure you understand the difference between reopening a claim and filing an appeal. So um, again, there's, there's a few other things that I'll talk about real quickly here. Um, with the first level of one thing. Yeah, go ahead, please. So one of the things, and and I'm glad Sean brought this up too, is make sure you know your rules when it comes to what you've submitted. So I'll give you a perfect example of what not to do. So cardiology is one of my specialties in coding. And right now there is a Medicare rule that says that if you intervene on one main coronary arteries, let's say you place a stent or do an angioplasty, and you're also treating the branch of that same major artery for a Medicare patient, it's under the B status, which means bundled and you can't report it extra. It means it's inclusive and you're already getting paid for it within the major procedure. So know what a B status means. Well, I see a lot of practices because sometimes the commercial plans will pay that, but Medicare is clear that they feel that that is already being paid for under the major procedure. And somebody will do a redetermination or file a level one appeal And you continue to get your denial, but you're billing for something that's bundled. So know your rules so that you're not, 
spinning your wheels, let's say, and trying to get something paid that you shouldn't be paid for at all because you're already getting paid for it in Medicare's eyes. So not just understanding, you know, when you're supposed to just uh, do a reopening of a claim because you had a duplicate charge or wrong date of service, which happens. Sometimes your doctors will give you a face sheet and you put in the admission date instead of the actual date of the procedure. So be careful on that, but also know your rules. It's really important. Um, I, in orthopedics, for example, we get practices that still want to get bill for a medial meniscectomy and a chondroplasty, but that's been inclusive now in that 29881 code uh, in the CPT book. And they're like, oh no, that's they, it's in a different compartment. Read your rules. It doesn't matter. It says any compartment. So if you are trying to get uh, an appeal or you're trying to do an appeal and you don't know your rules, you're only going to be spinning your wheels. Uh, that's a great point. All right. So let me let me just uh, wrap up the the first level of the appeal, the redetermination. So again, a few things to keep in mind. You you have to file your request for a redetermination within 120 days from the date of receipt of either your electronic remittance advice, your ERA, or a standard paper remittance advice, what they call an SPR. Again, you're going to file this in writing. You're going to use CMS form 20027 again. Make sure you include those elements that we talked about before, such as the Medicare, uh, Medicare beneficiary's name. Make sure you attach supporting documentation and make sure, most importantly, you keep a copy of all appeal documentation you send to Medicare. Remember, there is no minimum amount in controversy required at the first level. And the determination for whether it's partially favorable, wholly favorable, or unfavorable will be made by the Medicare administrative uh, contractor staff. Again, these are uninvolved individuals with the initial claim determination um, who are actually performing this redetermination. And typically, you know, the MACs are going to issue that determination within 60 days of getting the request for redetermination. All right. So that's the first level of appeal. Um, Terry, anything else you want to add to that? And then we can uh, go to level two. No, I think just to just to sum it up as well, that, you know, the MAC reviews and completes the level one, then we'll send you a letter or a new remittance notice with the results. I, I have to tell you, it doesn't always come with a payment. So sometimes it's more the results and then the payment may come later if they agree with that appeal. Um, but both the letter and the remittance notice now needs to be included when you get to the the level two appeal, and now you'll because now you're saying you disagree. So now we're going to get into the reconsideration. So go and take it away. This is now the qualified independent contractor. Oh yeah, and this is this is one of my most aggravating levels. In all sincerity, me too. Um, and 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 folks, you'll understand why here in just a few minutes. So again. Uh, when we're talking about the reconsideration, we're talking about level two. And again, a party to a redetermination has a right by statute to request a reconsideration if you are dissatisfied with the initial results at the redetermination. I will tell you, 90% of the time, you're not going to be happy with the results of a redetermination. So 
be prepared to go to level two. Now, a QIC, as Terry referred to them, these are qualified independent contractors. These are the individuals who are responsible for conducting the reconsideration. Now, this process allows for what they refer to as an independent review of an initial determination, including the redetermination, which sometimes may include the review of a medical necessity issue, either by a panel of physicians or what they like to refer to as other healthcare professionals. That could mean an RN. It can mean an LPN. Uh, it can mean a PA or an NP or a registered dietitian. It could be a PT, an OT. It just depends. But the, the important thing is that you do have the right to know who is actually reviewing your claims. In Chapter 3 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, it's Section 3.3.1.1. It specifically addresses who is eligible to conduct these medical necessity reviews from a clinical perspective. And what it basically says is that not only do they have to possess a license as a clinician, but they also have to possess the requisite skills in the specialty to comply with their medical record scope of work. They call it an MRSOW. Okay. And this is why I try to encourage people, whether I'm teaching one of these courses or I'm actually doing an appeal on behalf of a client. You have to know the regs. You have to know the statutes. You have to know what your rights are to be able to level the playing field. I will tell you, it is a mixed bag of nuts at the reconsideration level. Um, I find myself banging my head against the wall a lot of times, Terry. I'm sure you do as well because oh, I could yeah. submit. Yeah, I could submit 20 claims on a on a QIC review. And I'll get 15 of them approved, but five of them will be denied or they'll uphold the initial determination. And when you look at it, there's absolutely no rhyme or reason as to why those five weren't adjudicated in the same way as the other 15, because the documentation is all the same. The problems are all the same. There's no differentiation. So it makes you wonder. One of two things, are they assigning these claims to multiple reviewers at the QIC or is anybody who's reviewing them, if it's just one person, really doing the review? I mean, that's what drives me nuts, right? Well, and, and it, it, it's also too that, I mean, and, and you and I talked about this offline at this level, which, you know, the you've already gone through one level, which is expensive because you had to wait, you're not getting paid. So now we're waiting again and taking staff time to now say, no, reconsider this. You, you know, here's That's even right. more information. I had one recently where they said that um, we took it to a second level. It was an acute MI 
we did an intervention for a, a heart attack and they said that the 92941 was not appropriate, that it should have been a regular stent. And I'm re and I'm the one that coded it for this practice. So I went back and looked at it. It was emergent in nature. It was specific to, it was STEMI protocol. I mean, everything was there that was medically indicated that we coded it correctly. And we're, we're doing with this reconsideration and we couldn't even believe it because at the first level, they still just, it almost seemed like it was a computer generated spit out that they said, we're right. going to keep it this way. But then the person that was reviewing it at this level, I was actually pretty mad. Um, they, it was a, um, it was a nurse that was an orthopedic nurse reviewing a cardiologist claim. I'm like, what the heck? So yeah, yeah it just, um, yeah, I'm trying to keep it clean here, but I was pretty mad about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. I mean, it drives me absolutely nuts. And, you know, and, and the funny thing is I love with the QICs because they have what's called an open discussion period. If you disagree with their findings, I don't even, you know, years ago, I used to file for, um, you know, a response for the open comment period. I've just completely stopped because nine out of 10 times. They were ignoring them. They were like, yeah, we've considered it and we disagree. And it's like, really? Nobody even read it. Because if somebody had actually read it, they'd go back and be like, oh, crap. We approved 15 of 20 claims. And the five that we denied were identical to the 15 that we actually uh, uh, adjudicated. So it's just, it, it's so aggravating. But anyways, again, at the reconsideration level, folks, remember, there is no minimum monetary threshold required to file for a reconsideration. A few other things to keep in mind here. Um, again, to Terry's point that she made in the beginning, you have to file a reconsideration uh, request in writing. At this level, you have to do it within 180 days of receipt of the redetermination. Now, <clears throat> at this level, you're going to use a different form than the original. At this level, you're going to use CMS-20033, okay? Now, if the form is not used, because you don't have to use the form, but I, I would strongly suggest that you do. But if you don't use the form, you still have to do this as a written request, and you could do it on your computer in a Word document, but you have to make sure you include all the following again. The beneficiary's name the Medicare health insurance claim number, the specific service and or items for which the reconsideration is requested, the specific date of the service, the name and signature of the party or authorized appointed representative of the party submitting the appeal, and then the name of the contractor that made the redetermination. But in addition to that, make sure you submit all of your supporting documentation. Make sure you submit all uh, laboratory results, all um, imaging from your PAC system or radiographic uh, interpretations. Make sure you include surgical reports, uh, nursing notes, whatever it is that will help paint a clear picture for why the redetermination level was wrong in upholding the initial denial. Okay. And remember, these don't go to your MAC carrier. You have to find, you have to go to where you um, you need to go to the CMS website and they actually have a list of who, who is the QIC contractor. So it's based on your geographic location. So remember where that's, that's right. going. That's right. 
So the last couple of things here for, you know, requesting your reconsideration again in the request for reconsideration, you as the appellant need to clearly explain the reason for disputing the redetermination decision. Don't just assume we all know what the word assume stands for. Don't just assume that somebody at the QIC is going to understand what your arguments are. And remember, each level of appeal is building a foundation for the next level. And if you don't do a good job, and if you don't submit the proper documentation at the first two levels, by the time you have to file for an administrative law judge hearing, you're going to be behind the eight ball and they may not be willing to accept some of the information that you're submitting. Remember, documentation that is submitted after the reconsideration request has been filed may result in an extension of the time frame that a QIC actually has to complete their decision. Because John is correct there, yeah. Yeah. Because any evidence noted in the redetermination as missing and any other evidence related to the appeal has to be submitted prior to the issuance of a reconsideration decision. Because evidence not submitted at a reconsideration level, as I said before, may be excluded from consideration at subsequent levels of appeal unless you as an appellant demonstrate good cause for submitting the late evidence. And the one thing I can also say to this, and um, Sean, you, you can tell me if you agree. One of the things I've noticed, because I've been involved in, in hundreds of these to getting to the second uh, level is you always want to add more information than you did at the beginning, just talking about the redetermination. So that's basically, you're saying, wait, I don't agree with you. This denial we're putting it in that request form redetermination because X, Y, Z. Well, then when they say we're still denying you, now you're saying, okay, let me, let me map it out for you. And, and not to, not to be condescending to the payer, but you know, basically we're going to now start at square one. We're saying, let me just take that example that they said we couldn't have the, the uh, PCI for the uh, QMI. We then said, okay, well, here is the exact page number. We'd say chapter verse in the CPT book, why we coded it this way. This is also the backup plan. Here's also the CPT assistant that says that we can bill for this. And it's, you know, I, I remember putting in there, you know, uh, January 4, 2014, volume 24, issue one. And here's two clinical examples. Look at our, look at our uh, real life uh, situation. It's exactly how it's mapped out by the AMA. And so when you add more information that just gives you ammunition, it shows that you're doing your due diligence. So try not to just take your claim and say, again, please pay me more or you're wrong. You have to have your backup authoritative references and CPT, your CPT assistant, your, um, let's say you're, you're part of the American College of Cardiology, something, you know, something that gives you that backup on why you are reporting something a certain way for your specialty. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and wrap up this, this first part with just a few things to remember about the reconsideration. Okay. So these reconsiderations are conducted on the record, right? That means you're submitting everything in writing. And again, in most cases, the QIC is going to send its decision to all parties, meaning the Mac and the appellant 
within 60 days of receipt of the request for the reconsideration. And again, if there is a partial favorable or a wholly unfavorable, the decision is going to contain information regarding your further appeal rights. But here's the most important thing to remember. If the QIC cannot complete their decision in the applicable time frame, meaning 60 days, it will inform the appellant of their right to escalate the case directly to an ALJ and bypass the reconsideration uh, process. Um, I will tell you, I do about 150 administrative law judge hearings annually. Uh, I do probably about 30 to 40 just with Amanda Wesh alone uh, every single year. And very, very rarely is the QIC able to meet the 60-day turnaround time. I think we've only had it once or twice where we escalated it to the ALJ. But again, the ALJs are so backlogged at OMA. Um, sometimes it's just not worth trying to bypass because, you know, you do have a very good chance of having your claims overturned at the QIC level. So, you know, weigh your options, be smart about these things. And, you know, you'll, you'll find yourself, if not able to make the decision on your own, you have opportunities to reach out to trusted sources that do this stuff all the time. Please, before you just jump to a decision or an arbitrary decision to move something forward or to sit on it, make sure you get good guidance from legal counsel and or from others who do this on a routine basis so that they can kind of help you talk through some of the best possible solutions to the issues that you're dealing with. So with that said, um, that takes us through the first two levels of appeal. Uh, Terry, anything else that you want to add before we uh, sign off and wish our folks a great Tuesday? I think the only thing that I would probably just encourage is I know we're all busy. I know those of you that are in a billing office that have had to pivot to working from home and virtual and not always having access to everything you need. Plus volumes are creeping up again. When you get to this appeal level and because Sean and I see so much in the audits of practices, basically not being compliant, this appeal level is your opportunity to say, we're doing it right. So if you truly believe that you're doing it right, that the documentation supports what you're doing, don't get frustrated. Don't vacate the dismissal. Don't vacate anything that you feel that you need to take at the next level. Even if there is a you know monetary out of pocket for that, if you believe that what you're doing is correct, just like an audit could tag you in the future for possible target, so can a successful appeal. It can say, you know what, don't mess with that practice. They know what they're doing. So if you truly believe what you're doing, then keep it going. And that's why we're going to keep it going with the next levels in the next episode. Absolutely. Great advice as always, Terry. All right, to all of our faithful listeners, to our friends, and to those who are finding us for the very first time, thank you, as always, for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us. Uh, on behalf of myself and Terry Fletcher, have a great day. Remember, be good to yourself, but most importantly, be good to each other. And until next time, take care. <laughs>